The work in education is not just to educate young people about the climate and nature crisis, but it's to help support them to care for and thrive in the world that we are co-creating. But what would happen if daydreaming became part of the national curriculum? If we just brought these spaces of not doing, but being into the learning space. But that you have that grace to listen and you listen with your heart wide open without wanting to answer with a better, smarter, you know, stronger answer. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Rachel Musson. Rachel is an international speaker, educator, facilitator, and thought leader on regenerative education and well-being in schools. She was recently listed as one of NatWest Wise 100's most influential women in social enterprise. She's the founding director of Thoughtbox Education and the pioneer behind their award-winning curriculum and training, which is currently accessed by over 5,000 educators in 76 countries. I'm so grateful to have this conversation with Rachel. I think that you'll find that her approach to education, to learning, is one of slowing down, of connecting with ourselves, others, with the natural world. She brings up this idea of maybe perhaps stopping, stopping in order to be, in order to feel the world around us and use that as a way of connecting with ourselves, others, and the planet. And I really hope that you'll listen to the stories that she has to tell, which really are the stories of all of us. Please check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.design. You can also check out our articles and those of other writers on www.intrepidednews.com. Again, it's www.coconut-thinking.design. We look forward to your comments and thoughts every time. And here, I'll leave space for my conversation with Rachel. Well, hi, Rachel. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. We have spoken a few times on Zoom. And of course, we've uh, been linked in uh, connections for a while. And, uh, and I know you and Charlotte speak quite a bit. I'll start off with the questions that I ask uh, everyone. The first one being, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Morning, Benjamin, and thank you again for inviting me along. And I love, I love this, the bigness of this question on a Tuesday morning. Um, I, I, I can answer this in so many ways on, on a, on a, on an inside out and an outside in way, perhaps is the way I'd like to answer this. So from the outside in, I am Rachel Musson. I'm the director of Thoughtbox Education, a small but mighty social enterprise working to regenerate education. I am, um, an educator, a systems thinker. Um, a climate activist, and um, a, a daughter, a sister, uh, a friend. Um, so many things that I think I'm seen as. Um, and and I guess what I love is is asking that question from the inside out. Um, really, I love the the invitation into inside out questions and actually how to meet the bits that people can't see. Um, and my answer to the the who am I on the inside out? I'm going to just share a story about salmon which is really live with me right now. So I am a salmon, I suppose, is, is my inside out question. Um, I, I was up in the Scottish Highlands in the summer and I was watching these, these salmon um, jump up a waterfall. And I, and I, you know, I've known that salmon swim upstream before, but I was so moved by these little beings because they weren't just swimming gently upstream. They were hurling themselves up a waterfall. And I sat for hours watching them and I really felt this affinity with them because what they were doing was listening in to their innate knowingness of who they were, where they were going and what they had to do. And even though it made no sense to be like hurling themselves against the torrent of this water, they just knew where they were going. 
And I really feel that in who I am at this moment on, what are we, 8th of November 2022, I am no longer going to flow downstream in, in the world that is not making as well. I am going to be more salmon and be fully human and fully uh, in presence with who I'm meant to be in this time. So there's how I'm showing up today. I'm, I'm showing up in my salmon form. Um, so fully human in salmon form, which is actually quite a nice, uh, <laughs> uh, beautiful nice contradiction. Uh, um, well, the, the the other question we try to ask, and we've, we've spoken to to dozens and dozens of uh, folks in the world of education, in all different kinds of industries, and we're really trying to get really a landscape, a map of um, learning, uh, and specifically by starting with a question that is quite mechanical in some ways, but also opens up to more conversation. That is, Rachel, how do you define learning? Mm, I mean, I love that you're asking this question to so many people. I think for me, learning is growth. Um, and what do I mean by growth? So we've got that kind of old narrative of growth, growth being more, more, more. But I see growth as being um, depth, width, <laughs> height, length, wisdom, um, unlearning. I think there's something about learning which is is so lifelong. It's so... Um, constant and consistent it's so energizing and refueling it's it's humbling um it's it's a space to um bring things in as well as take things out put things on as well as you know take things off um and i think there's such a hierarchy that has been shaped in our in our global narrative about learning that learning only happens in certain times and places and you know when you finish school you finish learning or um you know learning is only something that happens when you're being taught um and learning is something that you're given um and yet all of us all beings are constantly learning by responding to the context around us and to the the kind of the the, the space that we can grow um you know i was just thinking last week i was with my little nephew who's six and he he gave me a hug goodbye and I thought to myself, as I was having this hug, I want to learn to hug like this because it was the most tender, beautiful, heartfelt, sweet, innocent little hug. So, you know, I learned I learned how to hug <laughs> last week and, you know, I've, I've been hugging for many years. So I think there's something about that growth that comes with learning that I feel so sort of, uh, energized by because it's it's we, we're all doing it all the time and we're giving and receiving. Um, so, yes, learning for me is growth. And it's interesting that you mentioned that we're all doing it all the time and you talk about depth and width and breadth and it's, it's doing it all the time in all kinds of different directions. Um, probably uh, um, also this clearly is, is such an easy segue into asking you about the linearity of what growth is and putting people on, uh, on, on these progressions, like even this term progress in, in, involves linearity. How, how, do we, how do we work with this idea of growth and progress, these tensions, sometimes the contradictions, sometimes the complementarity? What, what do you think of this word progress and, and, and how do we handle it? Mm, such a beautiful question. Thank you. And I think I think there's so much um, to unpick about the word progress. And, you know, I think about maybe journeying. And I remember, you know, 10 years ago when I started this work I'm in now, I drew this giant picture of, of, of the world and I drew a map of, of, of human progress. And I'm putting those in, in floated inverted comments um, of how we've kind of journeyed towards this state of more, more, more. Um, and this progress has taken us away from a deep sense of belonging, away from a sense of connection into this sort of almost like ladder 
of getting higher and higher and better and better and bigger and bigger. But there is no end to that ladder. And I think in this big picture I drew, the kind of progress journeys had, had got us into this state of overwhelm, really. And, and, and at the end of this picture, I just wrote three words, um, enough, question mark, enough, exclamation mark, enough, full stop. Um, and, and really thinking about where is progress taking us? Because um, when is enough? When have we when have we got to the end point of progress? You know, if, we, if it's if it's its constant journey towards more, when will we ever feel that? Okay, I've got enough now. That that's me done. Um, knowing also that this progress, um, the narrative of progress, which is linearity and which is a growth space of of of, of more more more, can't continue on a finite planet. Um, and also that progress being almost like a competition, almost, you know, I've got more, I'm getting more, I'm being more than you, you know, but but where is the satisfaction in that? And when when is, is a space of peace in that progress? So I find the whole narrative of progress um, as a journey, maybe that's how we can retell what it means. Because when we think about the progress, uh, the progression of life, um, We've sort of almost, certainly in Western cultures, got a very skewed narrative of, of of life that we kind of keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going and then just die. And it's almost like death is a failure as opposed to a process. Um, and I think this, this almost like, you know, progress and process need to perhaps be uh, interchanged a little bit more so that we can see this growth space as process and uh, journeying as opposed to uh, a linear linear kind of hierarchical growth does does that make sense i'm trying to sort of try to visualize pictures in this as well and it's sort of a ladder versus a meandering path that maybe brings you back to where you started um which is still process progress you know in a way no no it it, it does make sense and, and I, I love how you've um described this idea of meandering path which is also that does bring in the process and and, and what you might mm -hmm. find along the way and, and maybe you might decide to take a left rather than having to go in this you know the the like all roads lead to rome as they say but sometimes you don't want to end up in rome by going <laughs> to the straightest rome. road <laughs> um, and, and i guess the question here is um within within the school context you know how how does this work how how do we handle the contradictions how do we handle the tensions again within an organized form of education. And, and, and for here, I'll bring it back to what you were saying about the narrative of, of places where we learn. How, how do schools start to think of ways to meander? How do schools start to themselves be wandering entities? Uh, or is it something that's antithetical? Or is there a high halfway house? And I know we talk about both ends, so I'm I'm um, kind of uh, uh, deliberately putting in dichotomy. So, so where do we go from here? I love that question of how do schools become wandering entities? I think, you know, let's take that to the education department and <laughs> give them that one on their to-do list. Um, I'm thinking as well about just kind of carrying on with this, this meandering um, idea, the, the idea of spirals, which I know you, you have, you know, so beautifully in your wiser framework. Um, and, and thinking of education in particular schools as this journey of spiraling. So actually we are constantly coming back to the, the growth level as we become older and wiser and more um, developed in terms of our bodies and our emotions and our physicalities and our, our awareness. And, and I think, again, with, with education, we have such a, a, a boxed, um, packaged version of what, what school is um, that takes, you know, 
innocent if you like little minds at the beginning and it, and it channels them through a process and it churns them out at the end and they've you know they've been educated and off they go and and so much of that is 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 in contradictory um framing to how we are as, as human beings and how life works and um and so there is the, there's the foundational you know brokenness of the education system recognizing that it was designed you know back in the victorian era to produce a, a factory workforce and in a way, you can say that education is doing exactly that, you know, so actually it's quite successful in terms of its model of design, but it's failing everyone in it. Um, so there's something about education allowing that freedom to grow on an individual level, which is not set up to do right now, um, as opposed to um, uh, degrowth, which is actually something I've been writing about for quite a while, what, what, how education almost contradicts its purpose. Um, and for this, I'd like to use the analogy of a butterfly and a caterpillar. Um, so in, in so many ways, I see, you know, our current education system in the Western Hemisphere in particular, but we've also thrown it out around the world through our colonial heritage. Um, I see it as, uh, as sort of failing children on so many levels, partly because it's it's taking them through the butterfly to caterpillar syndrome of, of learning. So we're taking in at one end beautiful, open, uh, creative, imaginative, free thinking little children who are bursting with the joys of life and full of that wonderful word, why? You know, why does this happen? You know, that, that's such a beautiful child's kind of question. And what's happening at the moment over our education system is we are slowly cocooning uh, these, these young, bright, open, wide to the world butterflies into a sort of uh, state of caterpillarishness. That's that's a word. So that when they leave the education system, you know, eleven years later, they are sort of slow and sluggish and 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 cocooned into a sort of very linear frame of thinking, where for many of them they they failed because they don't fit into that, or they've been uh, reformed, conformed, confined to a point where they just don't feel the joy of of life anymore. Or they feel that the world has suddenly shut down from being this endless space of wonder that, that it was when they were little into just very linear pathways that seem to be all about economic growth and feeding into a system um, that don't really have any space for the individual. Um, and yet, let's go back to the very beginning of school. What happens if we if we don't you know capture those butterflies in nets, if we don't put them back into the into the cocoon and if we keep that freedom and that that joy of learning and so again thinking about this linearity versus this spiraling um what i feel just needs to be welcomed into the education system and back into our human um kind of learning spaces is um that invitation to journey within ourselves as well as within the outer world so that the, the individual soul is actually welcomed into the conversation and the the, the individual passions and creative um, humors and, and, and directions are all part of that learning journey and I get the complexity that can't happen in the current state but it's why the current state needs to evolve itself um, and, and really giving autonomy to the individual learner to, to, to journey on their own path of, of, of inquisition and, and curiosity. So, you know, I think again, again back to butterflies just to finish this, this response. When you watch them flitting from flower to flower to, you know, to pollinator to pollinator, it's with this, this joyfulness, this lightness, this depth as they, as they kind of meander around. And what if learning looked like that? What if it allowed that, you know, beautiful inquisitive meandering that actually was feeding you know the butterfly um and helping it to grow you know what could that look like 
And I love I love that image and, and just even the fact that a caterpillar is so long, long and straight involves the longer. <laughs> there, there's nothing wrong with caterpillars by any stretch, but you know, it, 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 they certainly don't. Uh, they, they they walk in in, uh, in a straight line and everything like that. Um, so it's mm-hmm. it's a beautiful image, and, and I'm thinking about. Um, the, the competencies, the preparing for the workforce, and of course, trying to get people to know just enough to read and write and arithmetic to, to work on a factory floor back in the Victorian age. I wonder today, and I want, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, if this idea of competencies or skills, 21st century skills, whatever they call them, if that might not also be a way to get people ready for the workforce. And that continues to be the meta-narrative of you need to be able to collaborate and be creative so that you can, you know, fill in the functions of the of the World Economic Forum and so forth. And yet at the same time, you know, they seem on the face of it like like great things to be collaborative and creative. What what's your sense of of how the the switch to competency frameworks has affected education? Not not to suggest that it's good or bad, but just just what do you think the impact has been or or the changes have been? Mm, and again, I really I really welcome these questions because it's it's something you know when we're looking at the education system, there's a recognition that that what is it for? You know, what is the point of school? Is a question I really like to ask. And I think you know we we, we ask that a lot, and we can recognise that it's at the moment in our model, it's helping to create the the generation who are going to continue the world that we're we're, we're living in. And and at the moment, it's very much about the workforce. Um, and so I'm going to hold that with also the discomfort I feel in my belly with that phrase, because, uh, you know, there's so much that's shut down in in that narrative of what humans are being and doing. Uh, and and if, if life is all about becoming part of a workforce, is that really as good as we can be? Um, so there's something in that that I think is important to kind of hold um, to question. But when we're thinking about how, you know, recognizing that education at the moment isn't preparing anybody for the workforce because <laughs> it's preparing young people for a world that doesn't exist anymore. And the complexity of trying to prepare them for the world that we don't know what it looks like is also part of the challenge. And so we're bringing in these learning competencies and recognizing that actually what we need to be surviving and at that moment, I'm going to use that rather than thriving um, in this world is is the capacity to to communicate, to work together, to be compassionate, to be um, uh, good listeners, to be team players. Um, so that's that's beautiful. I recognize that the, the, the kind of tremendous value in that and and the permission that has been given to educators to focus on what I hate the fact they call this, but what are soft skills? And again, I'm putting those in my little inverted commas because that word is so critical of what are fundamental, you know, human values and, and, and essential skills. They're not soft, they're, they're, they're essential. Um, so yes, that's been a, a very strong way of bringing in qualities and competencies that you cannot measure in, in a kind of data table, but are, you know, invaluable for us as we grow in this world. I want to just come back and, and, and critique the workforce element, though, because one of the questions I just come back to time and time again, again, perhaps it's just the inner salmon in me speaking. You know, what am I here for? Like, what what is the point of being alive? And I remember when I was a kid, I I, I kind of devised this great idea that um, it, it bothered me greatly when I was a child that, that, that the system we've got at the moment in the West is, you know, you 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 you're born, you have a lovely time and then you go to school and you sit down a lot. And then you learn to be well-behaved and you learn to do something well. And then you work up until the age of, well, when I was little, it was 65. It's now, gosh, goodness what it is. Um, and then you retire. And so when you're a lot older, you're a lot creakier, you're a lot kind of, uh, you know, not quite as agile on your feet. Then you can have maybe 10, 20 years, if you're lucky, of having a lovely time. And then you've got, then you've gone. 
And that made no sense to me as a child. It's like, why do I want to live to, to look forward to when I'm 65? Why can't I have a nice time now? So I devised this grand plan that actually would retire between the ages of 25 and 45. Um, and that the, the retirement age will be paid for, you know, posthumously by our elders. And we'd sort of send that money back. So we'd always have that retirement pot. So that was always bothering me that we've designed this kind of story about life that was all about uh, living at the end of it rather than living throughout it. So even when I think about the workforce, um, the, the, the labelling of that feels just so restrictive. And, you know, is that really what I'm here for? And I, I look around at the, you know, the tigers or the, 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 the moths or the butterflies and think, do they really live as though they're a workforce? And then they look, look forward to later. You know, what about livelihoods? And I'm really interested in that instead of a workforce. Like, what about creating what, what so many people call right livelihoods, you know, so that we're living well, we're living with purpose, we're contributing to something much bigger than ourselves. And that is work, it's, it's giving, it's sharing, it's, it's honouring our skills and it's supporting others with that. But it's not that we do that, you know, from nine until five and then we have a lovely time at the end of that. It's that it's all positively and, and that's that's a very naive you know thing to say because obviously life is not always positive but that it's not you work and then you live but that there is a livelihood and I think you know coming back to who I am the, the, the place I really have arrived at having been a teacher for most of my life and now working for my for myself <laughs> and running a small enterprise um, I feel totally joyful that I have a balance where life and work are not separate they're interconnected and so I don't feel I'm part of the workforce. I feel I've carved out a livelihood for myself that will sustain me for as long as I have uh, left on this beautiful planet. Um, so there's something in that as well, I think would be would be um, a space that I'd really like to see happening in our education systems that we are integrating work and life as, as part of the same um, process. Does that make any sense? It, it does. and. It's there's so many threads that I'd like to pull on. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lay them all out and then we can decide what, what to do. This idea of, of livelihood brings me back to this, the the word that you used earlier about degrowth. And and of course people think about degrowth and we're all gonna live in caves, but no, it's not about that. It's about changing our values and having a different livelihood, like buen vivir, as they say in Spanish, and just the good life and and enjoying things in a, in a, in a different way. So so I'd, I'd be very interested in the connection between livelihood and degrowth and then if we really want to take it further thinking about this idea of progress and degrowth uh in terms of, of what it might be in terms of these learning journeys and these learning meanderings the other thing i'd be really interested in in, in hearing about and again just pull on the thread that that you'd like is um so you know if we talk about workforce whatever using that word in terms of the future you also brought in the climate and climate emergency which is a now thing it's not a later on thing would it be possible to think about not preparing kids for the workforce of the future that we don't know about, but preparing them actually now for this right livelihood and in order to think about the climate emergency? And I'm not talking about compost bins and recycling pots, but something a little bit more. But there's a lot of time space here, things here that, that, that seem to be quite relevant. So just, just get your response on, on, on these questions that really would take days and days and days and years to answer. Okay, so we'll meander from one to the next. I'll start with climate because I've just been writing this morning about um, education time of the planetary emergency and, and actually how as we enter another COP uh, summit in Egypt, 
that the, the work in education is not just to educate young people about the climate and nature crisis, but it's to help support them to care for and thrive in the world that we are co-creating. And I think there's something in that um, narrative that really needs pushback, pushback, because I hear and I know a lot of people are now jumping on the climate education bandwagon because we recognize there is a need to support. But what happens when you give children, sorry, I don't know why I'm smiling because this is terrible, but what happens when you give children excessive amount of information about the climate crisis is you just end up in a state of paralysis, overwhelm, distress and shutdown. Um, and that is not what this, this work is. This work, as you're just saying there, is really about supporting livelihoods. And, and, and I think one of the things that is so energizing for me about the work we're doing at Thoughtbox is really supporting what we call a culture of care, focusing on self-care, people care and earth care, uh, which is meeting the challenges of the world that we are in, but moving towards the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, to borrow Charles Eisenstein's beautiful quote, because when we are thinking about, um, you know, the next generation and the, the world that we're in now, if I was a young person growing up and I was just being told all the mess that the adults had made and that you're going to have to fix that, why, why would I want to do that? Whereas if I'm being invited to co-create the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, I have a role in that, I have energy in that, and I have something to move from and then to. I can move from the excessive, consumptive, um, pollutive, um, extractive uh, world that we are currently in to a world that is more collaborative, um, community focused, um, focused on thriving, not just surviving. So I think in that in that notion of climate education, it's 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 recognizing that climate education is is, is not just meet the crisis. It's co-create the more beautiful world. Um, and coming back to, to degrowth, because again, it's sort of it's part of the same narrative. When you were asking that question, two things came into my head. One was ants and one was daydreams. Um, and, and I kind of want to meander on both of those in terms of like the, the productivity and the purpose that come with, with the degrowth model in particular in education. Um, so when I was um, when I was a teacher, I, I left teaching in, in 2010 and I spent quite a few years living in Tanzania um, and I went from a life uh, where I was getting up at six. I was often in, in the school by seven. I'd be having meetings with kids from half seven and then you're just off. You're on a conveyor belt as a teacher, as you well know, and you're, you're, you're you know, you, you don't get to, to breathe until the end of the day or, you know, when the bell rings, you can go to the toilet or have a cup of tea. You're a bit like a Pavlov's dog. You, you know, you, you lose your autonomy and it's all about do, do, do and productivity uh, and, and then exhaustion. And, and, Every teacher will tell you that we all get sick at the beginning of every school holiday because your body finally rests and all the bugs that you've been fighting off come to you. And, and then you have that long period of rest and then you strengthen yourself up to go back in again. And when I left teaching in 2010 and spent some time in Tanzania, I was on an, an unlearning journey, really, and a journey of stripping away all the things that had gotten the way of me understanding what it meant to be fully human and, and, and thriving and how to bring that back into education. And I would spend a lot of time watching ants. And I remember there was just many days I was sitting on my porch under this beautiful avocado tree where I lived in, in, in Arusha in Tanzania. And I'd be watching, you know, fascinatingly watching ants just, just being and doing and, and, and what complex and, and extraordinary creatures they were. Um, and while I was watching them, I was busy thinking and processing and, and reframing and relearning and unlearning and growing in my own understanding and reflections about, about life. And all of that, that learning and thinking and being 
was then channeled into the work I did. But at the end of the day, if someone said to me, what have you done today, Rachel? I would say I've sat under the tree and I've drunk lots of tea and I've watched ants. Um, and that in the kind of progress uh, narrative is a total waste of time. I'm a, I'm a waste of a woman. I'm a waste of productivity and I've achieved absolutely nothing. And yet those moments of not doing, but of being are the fundamental kind of spaces where we can actually really connect to the wider wisdom of, of, of allowing, allowing things to process and settle, allowing us to um, regurgitate and, and, and find those little nuggets, allowing us to just be in presence and allowing what I, I, I love is a quote from Bayaka Malafa, who I know was on your podcast recently, where he says, these, these times are urgent, let us slow down. And there's something in that, you know, that slowness, the you know, anti-growth space that is the place where life can then emerge. So I, I, I use ants a lot as an analogy for permission to rest and permission to slow, because in those spaces, the world opens up. And then coming back into the education space, I want to welcome daydreaming. So as a teacher, you know, you're taught probably pretty early on that children have got to be fully attentive to you. And, you know, if someone is staring out the window, they're, they're not listening to you. And therefore, you know, you, you need to be punishing them or bring them back into 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 the space and this always bothered me when I was teaching because I know from myself I I think by musing you know I, I'm looking at the clouds while I'm like processing ideas and and I can listen with one ear and I can think and look with it you know with other parts of me and yet um daydreaming is is, is like the antithesis of a, of a good classroom in the kind of old rigors of education but what would happen if daydreaming became part of the national national curriculum if we just brought these spaces of not doing but being into the learning space if we allowed children that space that time that breath that slowness to actually just become and to reflect and to allow that that learning to go in and to deepen in them um what would that look like um, and i remember one of my first teaching jobs um, I, I perhaps, I don't know whether I was rebellious. I think I was just, you know, trying things out. But whenever the sun was shining, I would take the kids out um, and we'd lie in the grass and we'd watch the clouds and then we'd write poems about them. And, you know, as an English teacher, you get to be a little bit more um, uh, rebellious than, than some because, you know, you can, you can be a bit more crafty about what you're doing. But those moments I just used to really, really cherish because firstly, we are outside. Secondly, we, we are not being constrained by a national curriculum, but we are processing ideas back into a learning space. Um, but we're also free. We're free to be and then to bring our own unique selves back into, into poetry or whatever the, the classroom might be on. So I think, you know, when I'm thinking about degrowth, there's something about slowness and slowing down and, and, and being rather than doing that I think sits at that antithesis of, of, of really the, the world that we're in. We've got a world that really champions and celebrates action and critiques and criticizes, um, I don't know what the you know, opposite word I'm looking for here, but 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 not doing um and sees that as a as a failure. And and yet I think it's those spaces that we need to really welcome much more into our into our learning spaces. And and this is the what you mentioned about uh, these are urgent times, let us slow down, is exactly about the climate emergency that we talk about, because you're right, when we think emergency, we think flashing red lights and quickly let's get together and let's fly to you know Egypt and, and, and talk about all these things. And um, 
and, and at the same time, that's exactly what got us here and, and slowing down, talking, having relationships, easing off, not being so quick to click on that uh, button on Amazon that gets you your, your delivery the next day. Um, all these all these things and, and getting to know one another, cultivating relationships with with our non-human kin as well um, would be uh, um, would be something that that is there. And, and yet, and as you said, there is um, a busyness that is a badge of honor. And non-busyness is a badge of shame. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's a question I really like to ask um, about this 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 slowness um, because I think it's a beautifully inconvenient question. And, and permission to go slow, I think, is actually so much of this of this work ahead of us. Um, I was just at a conference this week in 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 Eden Project in in Cornwall, this beautiful biosphere of of of, of the world around us, and it was UK leaders, business leaders were all brought together to really think about the future of Britain. And I decided that my role there was to ask beautifully provocative questions. And so I was on this uh, in the audience at this panel discussion from five quite, you know, high high profile business leaders. And they were talking about their their own role in, in the future of, of Britain. And I somehow got my question asked at the end. And I and I and I started with that that beautiful quote from Bio about slowing down and then sort of reflected on 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 what what we're all doing in this space to to stop, look and listen. Um, because I think you know, there's there's such wisdom out there. We've we've got the answers to so many of the crises that we're facing. We're perhaps just not looking in the right places. And and in particular, I I, I look a lot to indigenous wisdom, to ancient wisdom of of those who know how to live livelihoods that are supportive of of the, the wellness of people and planet. To look at different cultural um, spaces and places. To look at different ways of being human. And so asking in that conference, you know, who are you looking and listening to for 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 help in in slowing down? I mean, the answers weren't particularly um, great, but, you know, it's the question probably that was that was more important. And and it's 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 that permission to think first, you know, and, and I kind of use that stop, look and listen analogy. So when, when we're children, um, certainly in this in this country, we're taught how to cross the road is you stop first, then you look and then you listen and then you move. And what would happen if we had that as our little mantra for everything we do before we do it, we stop, we look around and see what else we can we can take in. We listen in particular to the voices that perhaps are not the prominent voices, not the, the loud voices, but the wise voices. And then we cross the road or then we act and and actually allowing ourselves that that stop first moment um and something that's just popped into my head actually i've just been um learning recently the practice of the alexander technique which you know when you hear about that for those who know it, you often think about it's it's making your your posture straighter because it's a lot about helping your body to become um stronger and straighter but it's so much more than that it's about stopping first before doing and allowing and enabling what is innate um in your body to actually happen first so that your muscles don't overact when they don't need to do something. And I think I really like that as it also useful, you know, learning in this space of, of don't act first, think first or, or feel first. And again, thinking about the work we have at ThoughtBox, we have three core learning elements that we focus on, which is thinking, feeling and connecting. And this invitation to be a critical thinker and a systems thinker and, and ask questions that may not be convenient, but they are quite essential. Um, so again, you know, coming back to that um, permission to slow, permission to think, permission to stop before going, 
Um, you know, how can we bring those spaces in? And I'm also really interested in 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 who gives us permission. Um, and actually, I think at the time that we are in, in the state of the multiple crisis that we're facing, the person that gives us permission is ourselves. Um, and, and, and what happens if we give ourselves permission to slow down, ourselves permission to stop? And and and, and I appreciate that is um, uh, not something that we can all do. And I appreciate the privilege I have that I've perhaps carved out in my own life to give myself permission to slow down. And yet we have capacity to give each other that permission as well. We have capacity to allow those spaces of slowness to be celebrated rather than condoned. And, and so... Um, you know, be more sloth is also, a, you know, something we've been thinking about at Thoughtbox with one of our courses is like, what does that look like to actually give ourselves permission to to rest, to reflect and to to just be in presence? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could talk all day about this. I think it's such an essential part of this work. Um, and I think it's it's absolutely fascinating. And and you're you're mentioning about the position that we're in, and and certainly we we talk to each other. We, we you know what what you say certainly resonates with me. I'm also looking at the date, and it's Tuesday, November eighth, which is when in the U.S. they're having the midterm elections, and it's such a divisive culture, and it's divisive in France, and it's divisive in in uh, in the U.K. and and it seems like everywhere there's there's just battle lines drawn, and I'm wondering um, what your thoughts are given the national education system in theory touches everyone in the states it's federal but you know same same concept of, of organized centrally um how do we navigate these divisions and all come together within education maybe beyond it maybe it's just learning school the way we are given all these battle lines the language that we use i mean if you tell somebody or if you tell the wrong person, you know, I'd like to bring in indigenous wisdoms, you, you know, it, it's, 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 it could be a hostile conversation. How do we, how do we work within this and the language and, and the codes that we use, the, the, the way we communicate with people who, who might not be speaking the same language? Mm, that's another beautiful question. This, this idea of speaking a collective language or speaking the same message in different languages is something I'm really sort of holding at the moment. When we're thinking in particular about um, the, the, the narratives of, of dominance, in particular in our media, we're, we're given polarities constantly. It's left or it's right. It's it's this or it's that. It's yes or it's no. You're in or you're out. You're, you're them or you're us. Um, and I think there is something in, in the need to celebrate the grey, to celebrate the space between, to, to sit in the nuance with um, discomfort, but also grace. Um, and and I think that again is such a space of of, of welcoming in our learning in, in our learning spaces. So um, we're really focusing with a lot of the work at Thoughtbox on what we call courageous conversations, which is how to have a conversation with somebody that might be meeting you from a totally different spectrum, uh, because this is all spectrum sort of thinking, but that you have that grace to listen. And you listen with your heart wide open without wanting to answer with a better, smarter, you know, stronger answer, but just to listen and hear. Because we all come with our carved stories. We all come with our context. And yet, where do we meet? Um, and that that nuance space, that in-between space is our shared humanity. 
Um, and I really appreciate the work of an organization called Common Cause Foundation, who do a lot of work to really support meeting with a shared language. And that shared language is the language of humanity. So we meet with our shared values of, of family, of love, of compassion, of, of what it means to be human and, and, and alive on the 8th of November 2022. Forget titles, forget politics, forget you know roles, forget responsibilities. How are we both human in this? moment which is why i really appreciate meeting people from the inside out first rather than the outside in because the inside out you get to the shared humanity the outside in you have the levels and the hierarchy and the you're that and i'm this um and so in that education space how can we um educate young people to feel comfortable and um compassionate in conversations with people who do not share their same experiences, their same backgrounds, their, their same views, their same life sort of styles with, with grace. Um, and one of the ways we talk about this with young people is the, the notion of, of glasses. So when we're born, all of us, whether we're aware of it or not, are born with a pair of invisible glasses. And those are the glasses that we're taught to see the world through. And they may, for many of us, be our cultural lenses. They may be shaped predominantly by the family that we're from, by the, 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 the person that we are, whether that's a physicality, a gender, a culture, um, by the land in which we live, by the narrative of our governance and by the, the stories that we're told. And as we grow, for some of us, there is a recognition that, oh, I'm wearing glasses and my glasses are different to your glasses. And I can put my glasses off and I can take your glasses and put them on and see the world through your lenses. Um, some people never quite appreciate that they're wearing glasses. They just think that is <laughs> that is life and this is how you're doing it. And if you're not doing it this way, you're wrong. Um, and for many, the idea that that your glasses are just as good as my glasses is also uncomfortable. We've almost told ourselves, and particularly with the Western stories, that there is, there is a superior pair of glasses. You know, let's, let's call them Nike for want of taking a, a big big brand and and if you're not wearing nike glasses you haven't got the right ones and, and therefore you know however you see the world it's not as good as the ones that i you know the way i see it because i've got the i've got the good glasses and yet the, the the recognition is that there are thousands millions of different ways of seeing and being in the world and we're all shaped by the world um the, the way that we we choose to see and, and and listen to the stories that we're told and and for me I feel such energy by recognizing that I can try on so many different pairs of glasses and I can see um, see the world through these different lenses and feel that experience. And it doesn't mean that I have to then suddenly become another person, not at all, but in that growth space again, I can, I can empathize by, you know, feeling and experiencing, understanding the world through these different lenses. And I can use that to polish my own, pair of glasses to be making sure that when I'm looking through them they're not getting a little cloudy you know they're, they're, they're wide open to, to to being in the world with other people around me and maybe that's perhaps a little bit too metaphorical but but there's something about that um finding comfort in the gray um and meeting in that shared space of humanity and I think you know the the, the question I, I I ask a lot is what does it mean to be human and and how are we in that shared space? Because I think you know, no matter whether you're the Queen or the King of England or you're the, you know the, the the President of COP26 or you're my next door neighbour, we're all human in this moment. And what are those shared um, moments so that we can move away from this polarisation and just meet in that in that nuanced space?
Um, does that make sense? It does. It does. And it's absolutely beautiful. And, and, and it will take, you know, walking one step together to go from our respective states and, and, and coming together into, into this gray area between us. And, and I think that's also um, something that, that has to be done together. It's not one party who, who reaches out. I mean, it is maybe reaches out, but certainly both have to be open uh, to, to these kinds of conversations. I, I, I want to talk a little bit um, about your work at Thoughtbox. Ta- tell us a bit about what Thoughtbox is. What do you do? Who do you work with? Um, what, what, is, uh, what is the story of Thoughtbox? Mm. So it, it's an accident, I suppose, <laughs> I'd say at the beginning. I didn't set out to run a, a social enterprise. I just set out to look, listen, learn and unlearn about the, the role that education plays in in co-creating this more beautiful world. And, and one of the foundational um, sparks for Thoughtbox was this, this powerful film called Schooling the World, uh, which really was looking at the the very destructive narrative that a globalized education system has had on cultures and communities um, across the world. Um, and so Thoughtbox began as, as 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 a way of bringing in, I guess you know, different ways of seeing the world into the bubbles of schools. Um, across the UK because I started working in the UK and I just shared out some lesson ideas with with some teachers of like you know what what happens if you had the conversation about this but you looked at it from all these different perspectives and created some lessons and they went down really well and and some of my teacher friends said yes let's more of those please Rachel Uh, and so then Thoughtbox started to evolve and, and and became as a foundation this this learning journey to bring the world into the classroom space, to bring stories of people, of places, of practices, of ways of being and seeing from right across the the global spectrum through time and space, so looking back as well as looking forward, um, into classrooms so that children could see the world through these different glasses. They could learn to empathize, they could learn to connect and also find their own voice in that. So the the idea of this learning journey was very much a discussion-based program. Um, So I I use the word curriculum again in inverted commas because it's not a taught didactic program. It's an exploratory learning journey to really think about some of the issues that we're facing, whether that's food, clothes, homelessness, immigration, the climate crisis, but think about it from our own ideas, our own awareness of why it matters to us, and then broaden that to why this issue is extraordinarily important in the wider world. And then look at what we can learn from and with a wide spectrum of people to bring empowerment back into our own spaces. So the foundation of Thoughtbox has been this this learning journey, this this, this core curriculum. But with that is now a foundational training academy to, to support educators in this space. So one of the ways that we support is exactly what we were just talking about, is how to hold courageous conversations, how to sit in a classroom with 20, 30, 35 children from totally different backgrounds, from totally different areas, political views, context, cultural upbringings, and have a shared conversation. And how to do that without, as a teacher, feeling that you need to end the lesson with a, okay, everybody, the answer is blur, or or feeling that you need to fix anything that's that's held in that space, but instead creating a brave space so that you're all stepping up to have those grey, nuanced conversations. You're creating a safe space so that no child feels persecuted or um, decimated for the bringing their views, but you're learning to take the view out of the child and to hold the idea up for examination and critique, not the child. And that's a very kind of clear process of learning that we take teachers through. And then really to, to to land in a space of deep connection so that we're in that classroom space with this wide plethora of ideas and we're connecting to each other by listening, 
with our hearts as well as our, our heads. And we're connecting that learning into action so that we're finding what we can do in ourselves, in our communities, in the wider world. And then we have this, this very core framework with all of our learning programs, whether it's the training or the, the learning journey of a, a triple well-being framework. So the entire foundation of Thoughtbox is designed around triple well-being, which is focusing on personal well-being, on social well-being, on environmental well-being, recognizing that I can't be well in a, in a in a dying planet, but the planet can't be well if I'm not well enough to support its health and well-being. And if my community around me are not well, then I can't be well and the planet can't be well. So that triple notion of they're all interconnected. Now, that can feel totally overwhelming because I'm just one person. So what can I do? Well, we bring it right back down to a very simple framework of focusing on self-care on people care and on earth care. So in all of the framings of the trainings and the learning journeys, the curriculum, it's all built around this very simple invitation into those three spaces. So how can I learn to care for myself and to really connect with my my own sense of well-being on a you know physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, soul level? What does it mean for me to be well in this world? How can I support others to be well? How can I be caring to my family, to my friends, to my neighbours, to people living across the other side of the world who are being heavily impacted by some of the actions that I'm taking? How can I be considerate to them? And how can I be caring and, and, and compassionate to the rest of the natural world? How can I recognize the need for me to be more conscious in the actions to make sure that I'm caring for the unheard um, voices of, of nature? And how can I be in nature more, recognizing that it gives me strength, it gives me wellness? So really bringing that simple framework into all of our programs. And so we work with schools um, in, in a way that I would say is, is these two words. is It's enabling and allowing a culture of wellness. And that happens on a personal level, on a professional level, on an organizational level. So we meet schools at all of these different levels, whether that's individual teachers who would just like to come on our training to think about triple well-being in their own lives, whether that is classroom teachers that want to bring this triple well-being framework into their class, whether that is leaders within a school working in different departments that want to bring triple well-being into how they manage their departments and how they support their colleagues, or whether it's a whole school approach to really put a foundational framework of triple well-being at the heart of teaching and learning so that we have a culture of care being what everything in that learning environment is built around. But again, we're a very small, small but mighty organisation. There's not many of us, but, but the idea is that we are not doing two we are enabling, allowing schools to become themselves. And, and the joy I feel in this work is that all of this wisdom and this learning and this research and this sharing hasn't come from, from Thoughtbox. You know, it's come from a, a wide range of disciplines and, and understanding of what it means to be human and thrive in harmony with people and planet. And so I love right now that we can use indigenous wisdom a modern neuroscience to say exactly the same thing. So when we were talking earlier about, about language, completely appreciate the fact that if I'm talking about Ujima, which is a, a Swahili um, concept in Tanzania of togetherness, that will close down um, many, many people who I'm talking to in a classroom. But if I talk about interpersonal neurobiology, which is Dr. Dan Siegel's um, neuroscience um, framing of, of what it means to connect on that deep level, there is now scientific proof of Ujamaa. 
Um, and so whichever way you look at it, the answer is the same, that as humans to be well, we need to be connecting deeply with ourselves, with each other and the planet. And so what I find so joyful in Thoughtbox is we, we meet people on a bridge with, with, with different levels of awareness, of understanding, of capacity, of, 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 um, of, of willingness to, to, to grow. And we meet where they're at using that, that, that kind of shared value space, that shared kind of common cause of, of meet where we're at, but then open up spaces for growth, whether that's depth, whether that's width, whether that's height, whatever that looks like. But recognizing that whichever way you turn, the answer is still the same. For, for us to be well, we need to have that, that synchronicity of wellness on ourselves for each other and for the natural world. And, um, and so really, I think, I think I just find such joy in this work because it's, it's supporting a culture of, of, of wellness that's not just focusing on the here and now, it's focusing on, on, on the generations to come. Well, listen, thank you, Rachel. I'd, I'd, uh, I, I could talk to you for, for a long, long time. I, I will ask you one final question, which is, and you've mentioned already your writing, what else is on your horizon? What, what are the things that lie ahead of you towards which you're meandering? Mm, yes, I mean, for me, because I've, you know, I've inadvertently started running a small social enterprise and, and, and which is joyful, but also I'm, I'm an English teacher, I, you know, I'm not necessarily a, a sort of social entrepreneur businesswoman in, in, in its fullest sense. So I, I've brought this wonderful woman, Carly, on board to really help me in this space so that can free me up to do the bits that I am good at. Uh, and so what I really want to spend much more time doing is, is, is sharing stories of, of narratives of wellness, of writing, um, of, of, of speaking, of, of training. If that doesn't, you know, sometimes even the word training feels the wrong word because it's not telling, it's enabling and allowing. But I want to be freed up from my beautiful computer to be out in the world a lot more in real life with real um, you know, human to human spaces to be sharing this work far and wide. And, and so really on the horizon is taking triple well-being as an invitation out into the world, not as a as a, a kind of, you know, the way to be triple well is to work with Thoughtbox, not necessarily at all. The way to be sort of sharing this work is to invite that 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 space into all of our lives. So what does it mean for you to be well in yourself, well in your communities and well in the, in the world around you. And so having that as a kind of mantra for, for, for the next, um, however long that meandering takes is, is where I'm off. So it's a, a mission to, to share the, the, the kind of invitation into a, a triple well um, future, present and future, I suppose. Thank you so much. Thank you, Benjamin, for the conversation. It's been a delight. This was a Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. Leave some comments. Check us out on LinkedIn. Again, it's www.coconut-thinking.design. And we look forward to hearing from you soon. Bye-bye.